You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Welcome to the October 27th edition of Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin. Today we have a special show for the WRFI Fundraising Marathon. We want to remind our listeners to support this very special volunteer-run radio station. You can call in now at 607-319-5445 to make a pledge to provide support and resources to the station so that it can air special shows, such as WRFI's science radio show, Locally Sourced Science. Now, here is my co-host, to tell you a little bit more about today's show. Why, thank you. Hello, I'm Cecil Barnett-Neefs, and to start off today's show, we'll be broadcasting a special interview with Dr. Kenneth Rosenberg, an applied conservation scientist at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He also has a joint appointment with the American Bird Conservancy. Dr. Rosenberg is the first author of a groundbreaking study released earlier this month in the journal Science. This study, titled Decline of North American Avifauna, describes the cumulative loss of billions of breeding individuals across a wide range of species and habitats. Later in the show, you'll hear about our visit to some of the science exhibits that took place Saturday at the Wizarding Weekend in downtown Ithaca. And finally, you'll hear from Dr. Luisa Torres, who has this week's science calendar. Earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Kenneth Rosenberg, applied conservation scientist at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He is the first author of the paper published earlier this month in the journal Science, titled Decline of the North American Avifauna. The paper documents a net loss approaching 3 billion birds over a five-decade period starting in 1970. Here is our conversation. Ken, thank you for speaking with me today. Can you tell me how this study came together? What or who were the parties that determined that this study should be done? And when did the group start working on the study? Well, this team of people I've been working with for 20, 25 years on bird conservation, uh, various issues and um, studying bird populations and doing conservation planning. So we knew for quite a while that many bird populations were declining. And so, um, and we've we've shown that in various reports, but what we weren't able to do previously was determine whether there was an actual loss in abundance in the populations because there were, some birds were increasing and some birds were decreasing. And so the question was, have we are there really fewer birds in total than there were in 1970 or are we seeing a shift in abundance with the rare threatened species uh, that we knew to be declining, but perhaps common, more adaptable species were increasing and taking their place? So we really didn't know that until we ran the numbers uh, combining the population trends with estimates of uh, population size for each species. Can you just talk about the sources of the data well, well, we're very lucky to have 50 years of monitoring data on bird populations. We really don't have that for almost any other, well, for any other group of, of organisms. And that's because people love birds and they can see them and hear them and identify them. So there are thousands of people out there uh, watching birds. 
And so the surveys that were uh, started back in the 1960s, uh, one in particular, the North American Breeding Bird Survey, was started um, by Chandler Robbins, who just had this vision. It was right after Silent Spring was published, and he knew that we really needed a way to monitor bird populations. So he devised this survey, which then spread all over the U.S. and Canada, and it's a great collaboration between the scientists and the birders because the scientists can design a really rigorous, well-designed study. And then it's the birders who are the eyes of the world, and the birders are out there uh, collecting the data, and they give it back to the scientists for analysis. So it's not really quite just like bird watcher data, which is what some people think. Um, it's actually quite rigorous data collected by, by the birders for the scientists. And we have a number of these citizen science programs that are set up that way. So that covered about 80% of the bird species we were interested in. We had this 48-year uh, trend. Um, and then we had to supplement that, uh, and we used other data sets uh, like the Christmas bird count, which is also done by volunteer birders, and it's it's a little bit um, less rigorous. I mean, the Ithaca bird count happens on January 1st. Lots of people go out and do it. And, and you know, but it's very consistent year after year. And, and actually, that data set goes back um, 100 years or more. And then there are some more specialized surveys. There are, there are air, um, aerial surveys that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Canadian Wildlife Service does to count waterfowl populations, and they do that from airplanes. And so we kind of took the very best data the, uh, f for as many species as we could, and we ended up with 529 species with a pretty good long-term you know, time series of bird counts. And so those species cover what populations of birds? Well, they're most of the, I mean, all the common species, most land birds, uh, waterfowl, hawks, eagles, um, shorebirds, um, lots of other water birds, uh, seabirds, birds found out in the oceans and nesting on islands were probably the least represented because those are the hardest to count and we didn't really have good data for some of them. But we we ended up with, um, I don't know, about 80% of the bird species in North America had data and the ones that didn't tended to be very rare species or only found you know, in South Texas or something like that. So we, we think we covered about 99% of the actual bird population abundance on the continent with our data. How reliable are the observations of amateur birders? Well, in my opinion, they're very reliable. Uh, birders, um, especially the ones who do these kinds of surveys, there's training involved and they tend to be the expert birders. And it is supervised, in a sense, by, by the scientists who run the survey. I would trust data from good birders more than I would trust, you know, a lot of so-called professionals who might be out there. And then, of course, it goes through lots of uh, statistical analysis and modeling that takes into account variation in the observers. And there's, there's a lot of variability in, in this kind of data, but we're able to, to account for that. But in this study, very importantly, we also relied on this completely independent data source, which is the weather radar. And um, the radar can actually see the bird migration uh, that's happening up in the sky and does not rely on human observers. So it's an automated system, 
And um, you can see this if you're watching the Weather Channel and you see all these storms coming across the screen. You'll see this blue and green clutter out behind the storms. And those are birds that are, that are migrating and picked up on the radar. And the weather people filter that stuff out, uh, but it's what the ornithologists have learned uh, how to use and study. And there are archives that go back uh, in time that, that are pictures of the bird migration on the weather radar at 143 of these stations across the United States. And so we were able to, um, we we needed supercomputers to do this kind of analysis. It's a huge data set, but we were able to go back 11 years with this um, continent-wide radar system and measure the total, that measures the total biomass of of birds that are migrating over, over the United States. And we saw this tremendous decline just in the 11 year period there was a 14% decline in the total migration. So that's about the same magnitude of decline that we were seeing in the bird survey. So both of these independent data sources uh, basically gave us the same result. What time of the year do you look at the uh, migration data? Well, these were, all, these were spring migration only. Uh, we could look at fall and spring migration, but... Um, birds, especially that are migrating down into the tropics, a lot of those birds die over the course of the winter. And so it's the, since what we were after is a measure of breeding population size, the spring migration is the closest we could come to that. Did you go out with any of the groups that were collecting data? Well, um, I do collect the data myself. I, I have a, a breeding bird survey route west of Ithaca. I've done it for 25 years with uh, Martha Fisher, who's also here here at the Cornell Lab. So, you know, even the idea that these are volunteer birders collecting data, a lot of the it, time it's the same people because um, a lot of us are bird watchers as well as scientists. And, and, I, and almost everyone I know and work with goes out and, and they do these surveys themselves. So, so it's a mixture. But um, so, yes, I've been, I've been on the surveys and I've certainly participated in the many, many Christmas bird counts. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to an interview with Dr. Ken Rosenberg, Applied Conservation Scientist at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He is talking about his recent study that was published in the journal Science on October 4th, titled Decline of the North American Avifauna. Okay, so let's talk about the individual results of the data. What are some of the findings? Well, the main finding, which sort of blew us away, is that when you take into account the increasing and the decreasing populations, we found this net loss of 2.9 billion birds over over the, the, the entire avifauna, over 529 species over 50 years. So that was a, a huge total loss. And we were able to look at that in, in a couple of different ways, and we found that that the loss occurred in almost every habitat we looked at. The largest absolute loss was in grassland birds, and that was something we knew that they were declining steeply, but we didn't really, I wouldn't have guessed that the grassland birds would account for such a large uh, portion. It was like 700 million birds just just in these. So these are birds like meadowlarks and horned larks and various sparrows that are specialized on grasslands. 
Uh, but also huge losses uh, in birds from the boreal forest because that's such a big region. So the total abundance of birds there was very large, and and the loss there was half a billion birds. So it was across almost all the habitats. And then one of the biggest surprises was that it was that the bulk of the loss in abundance was occurring in common species, and not just the rare and threatened species. So common familiar birds. Uh, backyard birds like dark-eyed juncos and white-throated sparrows uh, are among the top 10 declining birds. And, and we even saw declines in introduced species such as starlings and house sparrows. So besides the grassland specialists, a lot of the birds that were declining the most were birds associated with agriculture in some way, you know, field birds, open country birds. So didn't really investigate what the specific causes were, and that's that's very difficult to do, and we're still working on that for each group of birds. But we know that one of the, the, the common factor across all the birds is loss of habitat, and the biggest losses seem to be associated with birds that um, you know occur in, in agricultural areas of one kind or another. And when you say agricultural areas, can you say that it's mostly in the Midwest or just in agricultural areas all across the continent? Well, all across. Certainly, these these are mostly Midwestern birds. That's where the core of their population is. And if you're driving across Iowa and Illinois, uh, what's happened is there. You know, not too long ago, there were lots of grassy fields. There were hedgerows, rows of trees. Agricultural land has become so. The agricultural practices have become so intensified that it's just squeezed every last bit of habitat. And so these are these are bird deserts, the horizon-to-horizon cornfields, a much heavier use of toxic pesticides. But it's not just in the Midwest. It's, it's um, in the southeastern Gulf states and in Texas and the Central Valley of California. And even in upstate New York, we're seeing the loss of, of grassland, of pasture land, and conversion to, to corn and other row crops. So just this loss of, of habitat occurring for that group of birds you know, everywhere. Why should humans be concerned about the loss of bird populations? Well, that's a, that's the key question, um, and in my mind, there are, there are two reasons. One is because of what what that is telling us. The bird we know that birds and bird populations are excellent indicators of overall environmental health, and if we if we're seeing this kind of loss in abundance and decline in bird populations, and we can't even really measure what's going on with lots of the other animal groups. We can be pretty sure that this is uh, an indicator of loss of health uh, of the environment. Healthy bird populations mean clean water associated with um, with clean air. So again, if we can't keep even common birds on the landscape or even introduced species like starlings and house sparrows, if they're declining, then there's something really wrong in the environment that that is certainly going to be affecting humans. And birds are such integral parts of ecosystems in terms of um, pest control and seed dispersal, and, the, and they are predators and prey within these ecosystems. So we, we could, in the future, see an unraveling of the ecosystems if we're losing too many birds. So that's kind of the biological answer. The other reason we should be concerned is because we love birds, and so many people care about birds, and so the loss of birds 
and the loss of nature overall is something that affects us personally. And uh, so, you know, we care about that even if we can't really make the connection with clean water or clean air or something like that. What do you think are some steps that science policymakers can take to mitigate some of the causes of bird deaths? Well, from from a scientist's perspective, we have a lot of work to do still to figure out what the drivers of these declines are and what are the specific causes and, and by and even where and when in the bird's life cycle these threats are, are most occurring. If you have birds that are migrating from New York all the way to Brazil and back, they're encountering so many different conditions along the way and we don't really know whether they are limited more on the wintering grounds than they are on the breeding grounds or whether it's all happening on migration. So we have a lot of basic research to do still just to figure out exactly where our birds are going and where they're encountering the the greatest threat. So that's a very important piece in terms of then figuring out, you know, how to mitigate those threats and and we don't want to put the limited conservation dollars in the wrong places uh, if that's not where the birds are, are being limited. So that's kind of the main um, scientific drive. There are lots of studies, lots of groups that are working on um, applied studies where, where, they're, where they're doing management to forests and grasslands and seeing what the response is to birds. And we have a pretty good handle on what kinds of things are important for bird populations and what will en- enhance bird populations. But to really reverse the the steep declines, we're going to have to be more precise in where we're putting those those efforts on the ground. In terms of policy, we we have, there are some great uh, policies in effect and great laws that we have in the U.S. and Canada for protecting birds, and we're seeing a a weakening of those laws right now. Um, The Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which have just provided basic um, protections for bird populations for for a hundred years or more, we're we're seeing a weakening of that right at a time when birds you know are showing such decline. So it's the worst time to be weakening protections. What are you finding that creates some optimism about the situation? Well, one of the main sources of hope is actually in in the results themselves, because not every bird species has declined, and we've seen remarkable recovery of certain species. And the bald eagle is a great example, bald eagle, peregrine falcon. That these were birds that were almost extinct and we we knew at that time what was causing the problem and we banned harmful pesticides such as DDT and passed laws uh, that protected um, these birds and other hawks and eagles from, from being shot and their populations rebounded incredibly and pretty quickly. So we know bird populations can be resilient if we do address the threats and um, and give them a chance. The other great success story is waterfowl. And in this case, and it's not an accident that, that waterfowl populations are, are so healthy today, and it's because it was the duck hunters who noticed and, and noticed the, the steep decline in the mid part of the 20th century, and they did something about it, and they raised their voices and put money with their mouths were, and sportsmen's groups like Ducks Unlimited put billions of dollars into wetland uh, protection and restoration. That's why we have all these wildlife refuges, such as the Montezuma Wildlife Refuge, are there primarily to provide habitat for waterfowl populations 
And the, the reason this all happened was to provide healthy populations for recreational hunting. People who love birds, we need to raise our voices also and become, become more of a force. So one of the big things we're trying to do right now is create those mechanisms for the other habitats, for the other birds that can replicate that success. And that's going to depend on, on people sort of demanding that that happen and, and become, become a political force. In response to this paper, I mean, we, we've just had this phenomenal response. I mean, being in the headlines and being in the news and, and, and so much of the positive reporting that we've seen about this paper really is, is evidence that people do care. And we've created the, this coalition of groups has come together. The groups that were involved in uh, authoring the paper as well as others like Audubon have come together and created this um, website, 3billionbirds.org, which is full of resources, um, the findings, the scientific findings, but also things that everyone can do to help birds. And we have, we have these seven simple actions. And these are fairly simple things that people can do, planting native plants around, around their yard, making uh, their windows uh, safe from collisions with birds, um, drinking shade-grown coffee, which is something a lot of people don't, don't really know about. So there's a whole set of these actions that people can do, um, and it does help to, to do them as individuals, but it would help more if pe when people get together and try to make these changes at the community level, and, and ultimately um, we can see societal change, uh, and it is happening in, in, in some areas. And can you mention the website that you were just talking about again? Uh, the website is 3billionbirds.org. I think it's also uh, hashtag bring birds back. And um, that's, that site has, um, it, you could actually get a copy of the science paper uh, directly downloaded from that site. We're making it available to everybody at that site, um, as well as... Um, information on the findings of the study as, as well as not really instructions, but guidelines for what people can do to, to do these seven simple actions. Okay. Well, Dr. Ken Rosenberg, Applied Conservation Scientist at Cornell Lab of Ornithology, thanks a lot for talking with me today. Thank you, Esther. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. You just heard an interview of Dr. Ken Rosenberg of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He spoke about his recently published paper, The Decline of North American Avifauna. To learn more about his study, visit 3billionbirds.org. That's the number 3, billionbirds, all one word, dot org. Yeah, so if you enjoy listening to Locally Sourced Science, you can listen to our archived shows and subscribe to our broadcasts by going to locallysourcedscience.org. You can tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Yesterday, Esther visited the Magical Wizarding Weekend festivities to talk about some of the exhibitors who were there, talking about the science of things relating to wizards, which is curious wave, you know, magic and science, but okay. Ah, uh, some of these things were geode crystals, animals that a wizard would love, and cool experiments at the physics bus. So, let's get to it. And your name is? Brenton Hayes. So I'm with uh, the Museum of the Earth in the Cayuga Nature Center, and I have brought with me a geode cracking station, which has been a big hit today. And then, of course, we have our, our Coelophysis and our Mastodon, um, and then the Paleozoic era, the, the plush pails, too. So yeah, we're just down here downtown having a lot of fun. 
That's great. So um, can you talk a little bit about the geodes? What are, what are they? Certainly. So the geodes, I um, sourced them directly from Mexico. Also know that when you open them, you're going to have a lot of really beautiful crystal. Um, a lot of these that we've been opening throughout the day have had a lot of citrine in them, which is which is really cool because the geode itself is... That's my birthstone. Oh, is it really? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so when you open these, if they have the citrine in them, they have this really beautiful brown color. And then you can actually get in there and polish, and the crystal will come out to be almost clear, and that citrine will be a nice, deep, rich, like, coffee color. It's very nice. Can you describe what a geode is, and how does it form? Oh, sure. So it's it's uh, basically just rock, right? So shale. Um, and then over time, pressure will like trap around the minerals. Okay, so over time, you'll get your air pockets, you'll get, uh, you know, rainwater that will filter through. And then the rock itself in the shale, as it moves around, will get compressed. And it continues to compress. And then as people go in and they're either you know making roadways or you know however they're they're having to like blast through a mountain um these these geodes will essentially come out and they'll look just like rocks um but when you when you pick it up it's a lot lighter than a rock and um at that point they're really able to be just opened um you'll be able to see if they're if they're old if they've been around for a long time and how long Oh, my gosh. <laughs> millions of years? Uh, yeah, so we're talking some of these could be. Some of these could be millions of years. And when you try to open it, like some of these kids here today have been working really hard because uh, you'll get the crystal that is so compact on the inside um, that it is actually like you're busting through. It's harder than the rock. You know, it's like the thing about trying to cut a diamond. That's, that's what some of these kids are having to face with these. Why do you have them here today at the Wizarding Weekend? So um, because the Museum of the Earth and the Cayuga Nature Center, because we're so focused on education and science, um, I wanted to bring something that could be educational yet fun. Uh, and I, I just, I've always loved opening geodes, and I think that um, it's been a big hit. Kids have been really having a fun time here with them. Um, and it makes me just smile a lot because everybody's asking questions when it opens. They're like, oh, my gosh, what's in there, you know? And what's your name? Seneca. Seneca, who is your friend here? Uh, this is Ace, our red-tailed hawk from the Community Center. And how's Ace feeling today? Uh, he's doing pretty good. Uh, he's spent a couple hours on glove, and uh, he's pretty calm. How does he like being at Wizarding Weekend? He does like to people watch, so uh, this is usually a good experience for him. And uh, he likes to kind of just look at everything around. and it's, it's good for him to get out and look at stuff that's not the cage of the nature center is he looking for a prey he might be but he was fed this morning so he's probably not very hungry at the moment he'll usually just look at birds and chipmunks and people he's not looking for anything in particular how did he come to live at Cuga nature center uh he was injured as a juvenile and he broke his left wing and was blinded in his left eye and after rehabilitation with his wing he came to us uh, and he's still blind in his left eye, so he lives with us. I'm Katie Newman. I work at the Cayuga Nature Center. I'm the Associate Director for Nature Center Programs. Okay, so why did you come here today to Wizarding Weekend? 
Yeah, so we brought um, a bunch of different things. We also partner with our sister organization, the Museum of the Earth. We're both part of the larger organization, the Paleontological Research Institution. So we're all together here at the same tent. Um, and we have both Ace, our red-tailed hawk, as our live animal ambassador, and a bunch of different um, educational materials as well as our regular merchandise. Um, so we're here to kind of talk to people, tell them about the Cayuga Nature Center, what we have to offer, um, and depending on you know where their interest is, point them in the right direction. So um, what do you have on display here? So I have uh, various preserved specimens in jars. Um, so another way to say that is I got a bunch of dead stuff. That looks really cool. Um, my favorite here is the little brown bat, which is native to the area. And they are a um, wonderful little species that eats a lot of the mosquitoes and bugs that um, are considered pests to us. What have the, uh, the people visiting the booth been most interested in? Yeah, so I would say um, that they're really taken by Ace um, because he is a live raptor. Um, he really draws in the majority of the crowd. We also have um, some geodes here that we're cracking that have been super popular as well, um, especially with our younger audiences. And then we have some medicinal plant stamps um, that are all native um, species that you could find. And we've got kind of ink pads set up so that everyone can um, go ahead and stamp those and make their own um, little art pieces and learn about uh, native plants at the same time. And uh, what's your favorite native plant that you've got here? Ooh. I think my favorite is the uh, wild ginger. So ginger is pretty commonly used in things like ginger ale, and we also have a lot of candies that people sell commercially, and those are great for an upset stomach, and they're pretty commonly used. This is the sound on the physics bus at Wizarding Weekend. There is a laser. You can draw stuff with a laser. There's a crank that you can turn and light up a light bulb. There is a bat that will dance around if you push a button. There's an airflow that makes a string go around. And what's your name? I'm Steve Choi. Well, I work at Cornell University in the physics and astrophysics department. And... Uh, I've been just volunteering for this bus because I enjoy kids looking at these things and being fascinated. Oh, it's a bunch of different exhibition that shows different, you know, physics phenomena from electromagnetism, optics, and... and Man riding a horse, and it's a circular basket kind of that goes around and around, and what is that? Yeah, so when you look through the slit and, and, and rotate this... Uh, you just see different, um, uh, I guess, picture of the horse, and you will see that you will. S it'll look like it's running. I, are you working with the physics bus? Yeah, me and my friend David work with the physics bus. And what's your name? My name is Layla. What is that uh, exhibit there that you have where people are touching what looks like a magic wand to a piece of aluminum? I'm not exactly sure how it works, unfortunately. Um, I'm an engineer, but I'm still not sure. And that's kind of like the magic that we're hoping to propel here is that we don't really uh, want like the kids to know how it works. We want to inspire wonder and kind of create this like happening in their own mind. Um, but this is kind of like the same thing. It's like, oh, okay, this looks cool, and we're trying to get back to like science being cool and feeling cool. 
um, as opposed to just having all the answers to these questions. So I've done, I don't know, dozens of events, and I still can't answer that question. <laughs> Science is definitely here to be the actual magic in this world. So I think it's a, it's a good clientele for magic or science. So, as you may or may not know, our show is entirely produced by volunteers, and they range from anywhere from graduate students, scientists, undergrads, former researchers, current researchers, science writers, postdoctoral fellows, and so on, all across the board. We enjoy checking in with our former volunteers from time to time and see what they got up to. Right now, we have our former volunteer on the phone, Dr. Gina Mason. She is a postdoctoral fellow in developmental uh, psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Hi, Esther. Hi, Cecil. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Welcome back to the show, I guess I should say. I'm excited to be back. I love this show, and I've been listening to it um, from time to time when I've, when I've found the time <laughs> uh, since I've been away. Um, so, yeah, it's great to hear everything that you guys are, are currently doing. It's nice to know we've extended our reach beyond Ithaca. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, I, I suppose we, since we have the time for it, if you want to, you know, is there something that you really took away from working on LSS, you know, your key favorite moment or something like that? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that I feel like I could say about uh, my time with LSS and, and what I gathered from it. Um, first, I, I would like to say that it offered me as a graduate student a platform to develop my own science communication skills um, because... I think that as scientists and as students in particular that are just learning how to communicate science, we can get caught up in a lot of details. Um, so it really helps me to develop the ability to hone in on the main messages of a study or area of research and to communicate complex information in a way that is accessible to everyone, um, including folks who don't specialize in a certain area of research. Um, I also know that when I interviewed individuals, I didn't necessarily specialize in the area that I was interviewing for, and that was really helpful for me um, just to learn how to how to communicate that. Um, it was also really nice to learn about more about all of the amazing science and community science events happening in the Finger Lakes region, um, because also as a graduate student, I think you can get very caught up in your own research and isolated and. Getting involved in local resource science really encouraged me to get out more and explore all of the science resources and organizations in the Finger Lakes. And it also allowed me to meet and interact with some amazing people, and not just the people that we featured on the show, but also um, my fellow volunteers like you guys. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I really, I loved every moment of volunteering with local resource science, and I can't emphasize um, or, or encourage um, graduate, other graduate students or, or other community members enough to, to volunteer or provide some time. Or if you can't volunteer your time to, to, to donate um, to WRFI and keep programs like Local Resource Science on the radio. Awesome. I can definitely relate to being trapped in the lab. It feels like I haven't seen sunlight in who knows how many days. So yeah, being able to come out and, you know, host a live show makes a fantastic change of pace. Speaking of labs, can we talk about your current research? 
Sure, yeah. Um, so my research as a graduate student at Cornell was focused on how social interactions support learning and attention in infants. And what I'm doing now is I'm looking at how other environmental factors, including sleep and sleep patterns in infants, um, allow for better memory consolidation um, and learning. And I'm looking at it in at particular moments in development that are important for sleep transitions. So starting around six months, uh, infants, at least human infants, um, they begin to taper their nap bouts, so their, their daytime sleep bouts, to around two naps per day. Whereas previously, when infants are first born, like any parent will tell you they're sleeping a lot. So they're sleeping a lot throughout the day and they're sleeping a lot at night. Um, but around six months and onward, they are starting to transition and get more regular in their, in their sleep bouts um, in terms of taking just, just two naps per day. Um, and so what my current research is focused on is how infants two naps per day, um, the one that occurs in the morning and one that occurs in the afternoon, how they dip, differ in their depth and staging. Um, so by depth and staging, I mean um, whether they get into really deep sleep or whether they get into um, like just light sleep in their in their daytime sleep outs. And whether the morning and afternoon naps differ in how they help infants remember events that they learned before they nap. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. So um, you, you mentioned um, the phrase memory consolidation at the beginning of this. Can you just unpack that? Because I'm personally speaking as a food scientist, this is a little left field for me. Uh, yes, yes, I really, yeah, trying to avoid the jargon. Um, so memory consolidation is, is just um, solidifying the memory and, and being able to store it in long-term memory. So when you initially experience something, it, it's not in long-term memory yet. And we think that a, a big body of research um, has suggested that sleep in, in adults and in young children helps memories get into long-term memory, and it helps us be able to extract information from similar memories and um, build kind of like categories and build broader concepts from, from the um, discrete events that happen in our daily lives. So, and so, oh yeah, go ahead. So, so to sort of put it simply, we, 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 you know, go to sleep, brain is doing a little bit less functional stuff as far as we're considered from the outside observer, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of uh, index, indexing going along to, you know, figure out what happened, what's what, and so forth. Yes, yes, that's, that's a great way to explain it. Um, and, and what's so interesting is that a lot of people think because you're asleep that your brain is also, you know, taking a rest, but it's really not. Like your brain, while you're sleeping, is doing all sorts of crazy, amazing things. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a great way to... to to paraphrase. Um. So when when we have grad students all over campus, I'm not going to name names because I'm partially responsible. But it, when if and when they're taking naps, it's not because we're all overtired, but we're we're consolidating memories. I can give this as a valid excuse now, right? <laughs> you can say that. Yes, I actually personally believe, even though I study infants um, who are naturally engaging in naps every day, I I personally think that. Um, I'm a big advocate for adult napping. I think adult napping is helpful, um, especially if you're if you're learning a lot throughout the day. I think you know taking a midday siesta is is a really um, helpful thing. <laughs> 
I also am guilty of this. So working in the sleep lab, um, our lab is well-equipped. We have three bedrooms with many beds. We have a couch and a living room area. And so there are lots of areas where we can <laughs> take a little midday siesta if we want to, um, <laughs> provided we have to do our own laundry. <laughs> so we probably don't want to use the beds very frequently <laughs> because we would have to. That you sounds know, really um, nice. You know, yes, the best, I, the best yeah, I have to nice. do is um, I've got a, you know, slightly tired leather uh, leather couch on. It's a single seater. And, you know, it's kind of comfy, but you can't really put your feet up on it. So this sounds like a grandstanding <laughs> upgrade. <laughs> yes, yes. I would say it is. I would say it is. It's, it's good to study sleep science. One of the perks of sleep science is mm. having, having a bedroom readily available for you so, if you need to sleep. What actually got you into sleep science? I, I imagine you didn't just wake up one day and go, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there were actually quite a few things that got me um, interested in sleep. So as an undergraduate, before graduate school, I was conducting some research on sleep apnea in uh, special populations. So in particular, I was studying sleep apnea in Down syndrome and how that relates to differences in learning and memory. And I think that sleep is just this ubiquitous occurrence across the animal kingdom, um, and it's it's one of many what what you could call environmental factors that influence how our brains are working and how our bodies are developing. And so, um, when I was thinking about what to do after um, my graduate work, I was interested in going back to sleep for a bit. And also, another thing from a practical perspective um, is as a postdoc, you're supposed to be developing new technical skills. And studying sleep is allowing me to develop skills in um, EEG analysis, which is basically being able to analyze um, brain waves uh, using special, that special equipment um, in humans. And it also is giving me more techniques in um, analyzing, like, physical activity and movement. And so, like, it, it's really a great opportunity in many ways um, from a technical perspective and from a conceptual perspective. That sounds really interesting. I mean, it's all going way over my head, I have to admit. Neuroscience was never my strong point. Um, but it sounds like you're having a fantastic time. And I'm going to take this last opportunity to ask you a slightly more serious question. In today's society, we're all very high stress, we're all very, very busy and so forth. Do you think we're at risk of not really giving sleep the importance it deserves? You know, we sit there thinking, oh, I'll grab three hours or I'll go without sleep and so on. Do you think this is on the rise and, you know, possibly hazardous? Yes, yes. I I completely agree with this. So there's a few, um, there's some really interesting research out in the sleep world where, um Basically, you can't catch up on sleep once you miss sleep. So I have a study going on right now with infants where um, we have them get their morning nap just for one day. Um, it sounds really, <laughs> really um, bad on our part, but uh, we have them skip their morning nap just for one day, and we have them take their afternoon nap as normal. And what we're actually seeing with that study is that even when infants are, are allowed to take their afternoon nap, as normal, and we get them all the time. We don't we don't wake them up early or anything like that. Um, they can't recover the memories that they lost during their wake period. Um, there's also a lot of studies in adults right now that show that um, 
when when people try to sleep in on the weekends to compensate for lost sleep during the weekday, it's not as good. It's not as helpful for memories, and it's not as helpful for general physical functioning. So, yes, definitely, I think sleep is very important. Having having a consistent pattern of sleep is also important. Um, and and with how busy we are and with how much technology there is out there, how much light we're exposed to because of our phones that we're, like, reading right before we go to bed, um, yeah, there's sleep can definitely be disrupted. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I'm probably going to have to change my schedule after this, but I'm afraid that's all that we have currently time for. It's been wonderful speaking to you, and I really wish we could have fit a whole interview about sleep, but there's only so many hours in the day. That is true. Thank you so much, Phil, and uh, thank you so much, Esther, and best of luck with the fundraising. I just want to say, please support Community Radio. It's super important. <laughs> thank you, Gina. Thanks for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Now it's time for the Science Events Calendar. I'm Luisa Torres, and this is your science calendar. So at the Museum of the Earth, you can enjoy a new exhibition called Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation. Come explore the ancient origins of bees, their immense diversity, and the ever-evolving drama between flowers and pollinators. Get an up-close view of bee anatomy and behaviors while learning how different species nest and interact. Explore high-resolution macrophotography fossil and modern bee specimens, videos, interactives, and engaging activities for younger visitors. Become an advocate for bees and discover how they impact our world and how you can help protect them. You can enjoy this exhibition through June 1st, 2020. A new exhibition, Fashion and Feathers, features a display of fashion items alongside bird specimens, illustrations, and video footage. The exhibit is a collaboration between the Cornell Costume and Textile Collection, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and the Cornell University Museum of Vertebrates. Birds are an endless source of inspiration for fashion designers. However, they are also exploited for their feathers and some species nearly hunted to extinction for their plumes. This exhibition highlights the beauty and tragedy of feathers in fashion and shows the influence of birds on dress across the globe. The exhibit will be on display through January 20th, 2020. Can drones help our bird populations? Drones are rapidly advancing in sophistication and availability to civilians. They are increasingly being used in agriculture, emergency services, and oceanography. Drones are also used in bird research for conducting population surveys, tracking radio-tagged birds, sensing and observing birds in dangerous places, and mapping and monitoring bird habitats. Join Dr. David Bird as he explores these applications of drones for research, management, and conservation in the world of birds in a lecture on Monday, October 28th from 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. in the auditorium of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I'm Luisa Torres, and that was your science calendar. I'm Esther Rakusin, and this has been a special WRFI fundraising marathon broadcast of locally sourced science. We thank Joe Lewis for our theme music and Blue Dot Sessions for their music. 
I produced today's show and the interviews with Dr. Ken Rosenberg. Dr. Luisa Torres produced the Science News Calendar. Don't forget that you can tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Our archive shows are at LocallySourceScience.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Locally Source Science. If you enjoyed listening to this live edition of Locally Source Science, call in now at 607-319-5445. Science, Science out! out.